Father, we invite, invite you to direct our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires this morning. We're grateful that we can call upon the name of the Sovereign God to meet us in this hour. We thank you, Lord, that you're at work all through this physical plant this morning, touching hearts and lives in each and every class. I thank you for every Sunday school class that is uh, underway right now, for every teacher, every helper, everyone who is participating to minister to children, to teenagers, to adults. Lord, we all need you to work in our hearts and lives, whatever age we may be. And Father, we know there's a service going on right now too, and we pray for your special blessing during the ministry of that time. Now, Father, we ask for your presence to guide us as, our, as we study through this passage in Exodus. The Word of God is here for us to probe, to understand, and yet it is your Spirit that illumines our hearts, that makes the Word real and applies it. And I ask, Lord, that we will be accepting of his voice in our hearts today, and that we will, as we read in James, be not hearers only, but doers of the word of God, putting into practice the truths that we learn from your word. I thank you for each one here this morning, and pray for your special blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, I'd like to read the first 10 verses. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I do, uh, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. I think in the 40 years that Moses spent wandering in the wilderness around the upper portion of the Gulf of Aqaba, that he communed with God on many occasions. He had lots of time to do it. Herding sheep in the wilderness, not much else to think about. It, it reminds me of, of people today, and, and I'm not you know, saying this is good or bad, but some people can't do anything without earphones on. 
you know, listening to something. And uh, wherever they go, whatever they do, they got to have earphones on listening to something. As if, uh, you know, there's no way at which we can simply be quiet and listen, and listen to our own heart and listen to what God may be saying. But uh, Moses had lots of time because there were no earphones, no other way to have input into his mind and heart except through his own mind. And as he herded the sheep, I think he thought often of God. Now, we don't know to the extent he even understood God. We, we read last week from Hebrews 11, where the scripture uh, tells us there that by faith Moses left Egypt, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. I, I think what that means is that in his heart, in his mind, he had seen God to some extent, but he had not yet seen God in any form as he will at the burning bush. There's no record of him having any kind of an encounter with God in the sense of an audible voice or a visual image of any kind prior to this moment, throughout the 80 years of his life. Certainly not the 40 years that he was in Egypt, and, and there's no record, as they say, of the 40 years that he spent working for Jethro, his father-in-law. I think this day began just as every other day began for him there in the wilderness. As the sun rose and the sheep were there, the sky was clear as it almost always is in the Sinai. And there was no hint that this would be a day any different from any other, any more profound than the day before, which for a shepherd in the wilderness is not too profound. Little did he know that a prophecy that God had made to Jacob 400 years before, which undoubtedly had been proclaimed by word of mouth by Jacob to, to Joseph, by Joseph to his children, by his children to their children, down through the generations. And so the people there in the land of Egypt under oppression knew at least faintly of the prophecy. No one understood that this prophecy was about to be fulfilled. God had been 80 years in preparing Moses. You know, in our day and age, when we're so accustomed to, I mean, today we even have programs where you can accelerate your BA and get it in three years. And being a normal student I'm talking about, there are people who can do it quicker than that who are geniuses. But, you know, where you can do it in three years if you want to put your mind to it 24 hours, well, not 24 hours a day, but, you know, <laughs> 12 months out of the year. And the idea of spending 80 years in preparation would be incredible. Most of us think, oh no, four years to get my BA. Will I ever get there? <laughs> of course, so those of us look back at that, we realize that was like that, you know, the time went by. But 80 years? As I mentioned to you last time, I believe, really, that Moses, as he was herding the sheep there in the wilderness, had no idea that his life would be any different from this until he died. That he would herd sheep until the day he dropped in the desert. But God had a different plan. God was about to answer the cry of his people. Had been on the way for a long time. In fact, for 400 years it had been on the way, before they even were in Egypt. The answer was on the way. Now, a burning bush. As I, as I said last week, this bush was nothing out of the ordinary. Just a normal, ordinary thorn bush there in the Sinai wilderness. The word, as, as we talked about last week, is so generic, we don't even know what kind of a bush it was. Probably just one of the Zarephitic bushes of, of the desert. 
And I don't think it was a big, huge bush, you know, larger than all the other bushes. It was just an ordinary bush burning there in the desert. We might say, how can the sovereign, mighty God of the universe display his power in this puny little bush? Must be something greater he can do. No, big sign in heaven, you know, Constantine saw, he claimed, a sign of the cross in the sky, by this sign you will conquer. And he paints on his shields of all his men, the Cairo. <laughs> but no, it's just a, a bush burning in the desert. But it was all it need, was needed for Moses to have a face and to face encounter with the living God and to see his total destiny, at least as he perceived it changed. Before we look at this miraculous encounter anymore, we need to get a little perspective on it. I'd like to read from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came in the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. And he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not be unbelieving but believing. Notice how quickly Thomas answers, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus, of course, is speaking of us there. All of those down through the centuries who would believe on him without ever having seen the physical Lord or seen the nail prints in his physical hands or had any physical manifestation of God whatsoever or heard a voice out of heaven. Those who simply have heard the word and believed because the Spirit of God convinced them of the truth of the word. But you probably are aware of the fact that there are whole groups today and have been historically who virtually demand that God perform signs and wonders to prove his power and his reality. To demonstrate to the world that they believe in a God greater than any other God and so God has got to do this miraculous thing and perform this great sign. Now, Scripture does record many instances where Jesus did perform signs and wonders. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But he did so for three specific reasons. And it wasn't just to titulate those who were standing around. Remember when Herod demanded, perform a sign. Did Jesus do it? Absolutely not. Jesus performed signs and wonders for at least three reasons, one of which was to demonstrate godly compassion. Jesus was the sovereign God. And he had compassion on those around him. And out of his compassion he healed, he touched, he relieved from demonic possession and oppression. So to demonstrate some of the nature of his character, he performed signs and wonders. 
A second reason that he performed signs and wonders was to validate his authority. He was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And, and therefore he was able to do what others could not do. And then thirdly, he did so certainly to strengthen the faith of his followers. The disciples were uh, kind of off again, on again, weren't they? Kind of hot and cold. And certainly these miracles demonstrated to them the truth of his messiahship. Now, the New Testament, which proclaims to us the New Covenant, had not yet been written. Jesus was, in effect, writing it, if you will, by his life. And the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on the church. We'll read about that. You read about that in the book of Acts. So Jesus performed signs and wonders. He empowered his disciples to perform signs and wonders. But it's very important, I think, that we recognize that signs and wonders were not intended by Jesus ever to be the glue that holds the church together. The church is not to prove its validity or to demonstrate its reality simply through signs and wonders. The cohesive force of the church is that five-letter word, F-A-I-T-H, faith. The just shall live by faith. That's what holds the church together. And if God doesn't choose to perform any particular sign or wonder within a group, that doesn't mean they're not God's people. We're held together by faith. What is the generating force behind that faith? It's the Word of God. The Word of God. If we look a little bit further down here in John chapter 20, verse 30, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Other signs and wonders were performed and they weren't even written down. In fact, John tells us in another place that if everything that Jesus had said and done were to be written, the scroll wasn't big enough to, to contain it all. There are enough miracles recorded in the Gospels to validate Jesus' claim, to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his compassion. We don't need a lot of signs and wonders today to believe because we are, as Jesus said of those other than Thomas, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. What about Moses? Moses believed God before he ever saw God in any form or heard from God. We don't know the evolution of Moses' faith. As I mentioned before, he, he, those initial years he spent with Amram and Jochebed, but they were very young years up till the time he was weaned, maybe age three, possibly stretching to age four, depending. How, how much can a child uh, take in in those years? What contact did Amram and Jochebed have with him later in the years that he developed into a prince in the land of Egypt? We, we don't know. But, but we know that he knew who his people were and he had compassion on them, and he acted rashly on their behalf, and that's what got him exiled out of the land. But Hebrews, as we read, teaches us that he left Egypt because he had faith in him who is unseen. 
And that faith is even demonstrated in this passage that we read about this morning. He only had the spoken word. There was no written word for Moses to read. He had only the spoken word, whatever he had heard from Amram and Jochebed, which had come down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the whole group of patriarchs. That was all that existed, as far as we know. And that, that was the basis of his faith. No signs, no wonders, no miracles up to this moment had played a role in his faith. I, I think as Moses approached the bush, Scripture says, he said, i got to turn aside and see this thing, talking to himself, as most shepherds probably did, and as some of us do a lot, without even hurting sheep. <laughs> hurting kids, <laughs> or grandkids. <laughs> he turned aside to the bush, and I believe as God spoke to him and said, Moses, Moses, he froze in his tracks. Whoa, you know, a talking bush on top of a burning bush. And, of course, the identifying name. Moses, Moses. God called him by his name. God knew who he was. You're Moses. Well, you know, he hadn't heard his name in a long time. I don't think the sheep learned how to say it. And, and uh, he, who knows how long he'd been wandering out there with these sheep on this particular tour of duty, if you will. And uh, so it was a mind-boggling experience. He was instructed to approach no closer and to remove his sandals. Now, why, why would God say this? It's, as I said before, I don't think it was a particularly big bush. Probably just a typical little bush, two, three, four, five feet high maybe, burning there. How, how close could you get without getting burned? Pretty close, probably. But why did God give him this warning? Well, we're told at the end of verse 5, God said, For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In our day, in which we live, in which everything is profane and profaned, in which to many people there is nothing holy, it's hard to conceive of the idea of holy ground, holy desert earth. The ground was made holy, though, because God had chosen to manifest himself at that spot at that moment. I believe that when the flame of God's presence died away, when God, as it were, arose from that place, that that bush and that spot of ground was no more holy than any other bush or spot of ground in the whole Sinai Desert, or the whole world for that matter. There was nothing intrinsically holy about that bush or that place. God didn't look down and say, oh, there's a worthy bush, and, uh, you know, make his presence known there. I think, though, in Moses' mind, just as it would be for us, that there was this thought that there was something special about this spot and something special about this bush. And I think if God had allowed Moses to remember the exact bush in the exact place, that when Moses led the children of Israel back from the, from the, out of Egypt into the Sinai, he probably would have gone to that bush and said, look, this is the bush where God met me. They'd have built a shrine there. This would have been a great and holy place to come to. But I think God let him forget where it was and say, wow, was it this bush? Was it that bush? Was it here? Was it there? Because God doesn't want a spot, a place, a physical structure 
to take the glory that belongs to God himself. Because it was the flame of God's presence that made that bush special, not the bush. And the fact that that's the spot God chose that made that holy ground, not the ground itself. The Hebrew word translated holy means set apart or separated. That spot was set apart from all other spots on planet Earth at that moment because that's where God chose to manifest himself to a human being. There was nothing sacred about the Sinai or that spot at any other time in history. God now requires two things of Moses. He says, first of all, to him, to come near, but don't come too near. God has created this phenomenon so that Moses will come to it, but then God says, thus far and no more, stop. Don't come any further. Remove your sandals because this is holy ground. He was to come near enough to demonstrate faith, to demonstrate obedience, but not so near as to commit the sin of presumption of believing that he could just walk right smack into the presence of the living God. We have to try to find a balance in our own lives between faith and presumption. And that's a struggle we all have, I think. Uh, it's a struggle that some groups do away with by just assuming that if they claim it, it's automatically theirs and therefore there's no such thing as presumption. But as we read scripture and as we have a balanced approach, to the history of the church, we understand that there is a such a thing as presumption and, of course, there is faith. Scripture proclaims that no man in his earthly body has ever seen the unveiled glory of the living God at any time. Our corruptible flesh cannot stand in the light of the full exposure to the glory of God. We just poof! We'd be gone. We'd be vaporized. In 1 John 4, we read, No one has beheld God at any time. No one has beheld God at any time. <coughs> I'd like to read a passage also from 1 Timothy, which goes along with this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you... In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Who? He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Whenever God has manifested himself to men and women in a theophany, he has always veiled himself. He veils himself over and over again in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, appearing to men and women in angelic form, veiling himself, hiding, as it were, his glory from the eyes of those who would witness the theophany. 
And then, of course, in the New Testament, he manifested himself in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Again, a veil, veiling the, the mighty glory and power of God in human flesh. So men and women could walk with Jesus and look upon Jesus because the glory of God was veiled in the flesh of Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. <laughs> oh, that's for sure. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Jesus told his disciples that the Father and I are one. Philip had not seen the, the, the glorious Father in, with his physical eye, but he had seen the Father veiled in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, as God of gods, had displayed the character and the attributes of God in the flesh before his disciples. And so, as Philip and the other disciples looked at Jesus, and as they thought of what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, they had seen the character of the Father manifested in their midst. And yet, Philip didn't grasp this at this moment and neither did the other disciples. In, most of us are familiar with the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In that 12th verse, we have a verse which I think so many of us are reminded of the fact that one day we will know even as we are known. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. We will see the glory of the Father one day, but not in this flesh, because this flesh could not stand in the presence of the glory of the Father. But one day we will know even as we are known, and will perceive the Father in His great glory. You know, whenever you read the passages of Scripture that describe something of the throne of God, whether it be in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Revelation, we, we see this, it seems like a blinding light and a great iris, a rainbow, around the throne. And it's, uh, in Isaiah's case, high and lifted up. and Ezekiel's case, it's sitting on a great azure sea. And those are all veiled pictures of the Father. There's no clear image there. Because even in a vision, human flesh could not bear the unveiled glory of the Father. So he was to come near, but not too near. In spite of the fact that God was veiling himself in the flame in the bush. The second thing that God required of Moses was that he remove the sandals from off his feet. That was a symbol. 
that was a sign by taking his sandals off and standing or kneeling or prostrating himself, whatever the case might be, barefooted, was a sign of respect and submission. God then clearly identifies himself as we read on in this passage. But Moses didn't have to guess and say, ah, let's see, who are you? <laughs> no. God lets him know right away, I am the Elohim of Amram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Elohim. Interesting. God uses a title here. He identifies himself by his title. The first title by which he is identified in Scripture. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, as we've already noted, and those of you who went through Genesis with us, Elohim is a plural noun. Elohim. But what's interesting is that you'll notice wherever the word Elohim is used, it's always used with a singular verb. It's like saying, they go. <laughs> uh, you know, or however you use a plural noun with a singular verb. You know, they is here. <laughs> Some people actually say it that way. <laughs> but they goes. <laughs> they goes. Okay. <laughs> What this indicates, of course, is the unity of the Trinity, or, if you like, the triunity of God. Interestingly, God does not in this passage at first use his name Yahweh as he speaks to Moses. Instead, he uses this title, Elohim, which apparently translates Mighty One or Supreme God, something along that line. But it's not because Yahweh was an unknown name to the Hebrews. In our study through Genesis, we noted that Abraham knew God as Yahweh. Isaac and Jacob also knew God as Yahweh and, and used his name in speaking of him and to him, Yahweh. And if you look down through this passage, wherever you see the word Lord translated with a capital L here, that's translation of the word Yahweh or what you know, we determined must have been Yahweh or the pronunciation of the Hebrew tetragram. The Lord did not use that name, though, in identifying himself to Moses in the first part of this encounter with Moses. Now, is it possible that Moses wouldn't have been able to recognize him by that name at first? This is Yahweh. Oh, who, who, who's Yahweh? Well, whatever the case may be, he knew the name Elohim. He knew the title Elohim. And that seems very clear because in verse 6 we read that upon God's disclosure, Moses hid his face. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he is afraid to look at Elohim. God had used a title that Moses recognized. And Moses responded appropriately. Now, I think it's very clear from this passage that Moses is not pretending deference. Oh, no, this is God. I better hide my face. He is in genuine fear of his life because he knew that he was facing the living God. Now, what's interesting is God's, God accepted this submission. Moses took the sandals off his feet, hid his face, and listened to what God would say. And God just moves right on. He doesn't stop and say, that's good, Moses. Uh, a little bit further, Moses. Uh, you know, 
just moved right on with what he had to say. One of the things you'll notice about God through Scripture, and I'm sure it's true of your own encounter, God doesn't beat around the bush. <laughs> God comes straight to the point. And, you know, sometimes we like God to think, but God, you've heard of my problem. You know that I have this, this difficulty. God says, do this. I don't care what your difficulty is. Deal with it. God came straight to the point in verses 7 and 8. He says, first of all, I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, did Moses expect God to say this? I mean, Moses had attempted very rashly to try to deliver at least one Israelite 40 years before. It was not very successful. And, and he fled, and that's what got him into this condition of herding sheep in the desert. But Moses probably had thought from time to time about his people, but knew there was nothing he could do about it. What can a shepherd herding sheep in the wilderness of Sinai do for hundreds of thousands of people over there in Egypt? Especially when your name is on a wanted poster, or at least it was at one time. What can you do? So he probably kind of put that way in the back burner. <laughs> and so God brings it right up front instantly. I have seen the affliction of my people. Moses knew who his people were. It's very, very important that we always remember that there is absolutely nothing hidden from the eyes of the omniscient, omnipresent Elohim. To me, I, I, that's a blessing. Because I know I don't have to offer any excuses when I go to God. Because he already knows all about it. And, and there's nothing I can hide down the corner of my heart and say, well, God won't see this. I'll just talk to him about other things. God knows it all. So we can be really upfront with him about whatever we need to deal with. God knows our every pain. He sees every pain. He sees every affliction and every trial of his people. You know, that's really encouraging to know that God knows every single pain that you and I have. He knows every tribulation we go through. He knows every affliction we have. Whatever it is, if it's bothering us, God knows about it. And even knows about things that we haven't even sharpened up enough to know we ought to be bothered about. Psalms, of course, are always a great encouragement along these lines. Seems like David and some of the other psalmists were people as we are and recognized God's blessing in their lives. I'd like to read from Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in thee. The degree to which we hope in Him, the degree to which He pours out His loving kindness upon us. Draw near to God, and He draws near to us. The degree to which we draw near to God is the degree to which He draws near to us. 
Do we want to know God better? Get closer to Him. God said, I have seen the affliction of my people. Secondly, He says, I have heard their cry. God always hears the cries of His people. Even though sometimes it may seem that our cry just bounces off the ceiling and echoes around the room and goes nowhere. Because the problem seems to hang in there sometimes. Well, our problem has not hung in there as long as it did for Israel. Because they have been in Egypt for 400 years. Now, they haven't been oppressed for the entire 400 years, but certainly probably for at least half of that time. They have been oppressed by the Egyptians. And they prayed every sincere prayer by a true believer is heard by God. Every sincere prayer by a true believer is heard by God. There is never a busy signal. The heavens may, as we sometimes say, seem like brass, but they are not. God hears. And what is interesting is that every single prayer that is prayed in accordance with the dictates of the Word of God, that is according to my will, is answered. Now for the children of Israel, there in Egypt, they might have said, yeah, sure, God hears and answers, and here we are, baking bricks for centuries. My grandfather made bricks and built on this town, and my father made bricks, and I'm making bricks, and my kids are making bricks, and God's hearing, right. That's the way it would have seemed. And sometimes we go through a difficulty and a problem, and it just seems to go on and on endlessly. And yet God has heard our prayer. And God has answered our prayer. But God's timing isn't always our timing. His answer comes at the time which is most appropriate for His purposes to be fulfilled. Not necessarily for ours, if ours differ from His. And our role is to have faith. To be obedient. <laughs> and to be what is so hard to be. Patient. 34th Psalm, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are, are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. It doesn't say they may be, or if you've performed certain duties, overpaid your tithe by 50% or something, that his eyes are on the righteous, or that his ear is open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. There's no qualifiers there. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Our, our problem is that we don't always see the plan of God as it has been laid out. And we're impatient. God, I want you to do this for me, and I want you to do it for me now. Well, God hears our prayer. God answers our prayer, but he may say, later. And we think, God didn't hear me. Or we think God doesn't care. But that isn't true. Because we have to recognize that our God is absolutely pure love. He loves us beyond our capacity to love Him, to love anybody else, or to even love ourselves. And He wants what's good for us far more than he, we even want what's good for us. And He will do what's good for us. 
Our job is to pray and then to trust. I think many of the Israelites were hurt. They were angered. They were disheartened by the fact that heaven seemed to be silent. My kids are going to have to grow up as I have grown up. Making bricks and building these silly fortified towns for the Egyptians. Why should we be slaves? We're the children of the living God. Why should we live in a land with these stupid idols where they worship a river and the sun and the moon? And yet here we are slaves. To them it must have seen that God never heard their cries. Generation after generation, they cried and the bondage continued. But God is at work. God heard the very first cry of the very first Hebrew. And he was working. And the timetable was set up, and the plan was set in action, and he raised up Moses, saved him there in the river, had him become a prince in the land, saved him from his own rash actions, and put him in the desert, and said, be still and know that I am God. Moses needed that lesson very much. Because one day he would stand before a body of water with a lot of people behind him. <laughs> behind him. <laughs> a lot of people behind him who needed to get away from the, coming, the approaching Egyptians. And then he would say, be still and know. As he would hear the word of God to his heart. God's results are the best results. But our impatience sometimes creates in us anxiety. A um, couple of things here. Some of you probably have read Charles Colson's book called Loving God. And in there he points out that he, he, he speaks of the great English member of parliament, a wealthy Christian by the name of William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament back in the beginning of the 19th century. And, and all through his years in parliament, which were something like 30 or 40 years, he worked to get rid of slavery within the British Empire. There was a minor action back in the early part of the century in which they outlawed the, uh, the transportation of slaves, but slavery was still allowed to exist as an institution. And he labored and he prayed and he labored. And then in 1833, he was on his deathbed in London when word was finally brought to him just hours before he died, Parliament has passed the law emancipating all slaves within the British Empire. And Wilberforce could die knowing that the prayer of a lifetime had been answered, but it was a long time in coming. Some of you have heard of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a leading 18th century Puritan in New England. And he prayed several hours a day for 20 years that God would send revival upon New England. In the year that he died, revival broke out. And he didn't live to see the great awakening that swept over the northern part of the English colonies. And thousands were swept into the kingdom of God. And, and you read accounts of how taverns had to close down because nobody patronized them. That's the best way to close a tavern. You don't have to pass laws that make them if you can't have it. Because then you just have prohibition. You have people bootlegging. What you do is 
create a bunch of people who don't want the stuff, and that shuts it all down. And uh, the Great Awakening was one of the great revivals to sweep this country. Most of us are familiar with, at least a little bit, with St. Augustine. He was no saint in his early life. <laughs> um, he was a wretched kid. And his mother was a Christian, his father was a pagan. And she prayed and prayed and prayed, her name was Monica, for the salvation of her son. And he lived a wild and woolly life. And, and she didn't see the answer to her prayer until shortly before she died, when he was finally radically transformed and gave his life over to serve the living God. And then she died. You know, there were probably many, many days in which she thought, God, you hear my prayer, my kid's still a, acting like a wretched person. But God did transform that man. God hears the prayers of the righteous. And God answers the prayer of the righteous as he is now doing for Israel, although they had been praying for decades and generations with seemingly no answer. God hears, God answers, we must trust. Even if it seems to take years, decades, maybe even a lifetime before the answer seems to come. It's that faith that we know that God hears and that he has answered that we need to depend upon. Well, there are a couple of other uh, statements God makes here that we need to look at, but uh, we don't have time to do that today, so we'll do that next Sunday. <coughs>